Take a network break. Enjoy a poolside virtual donut as we dog paddle into the deep end of this week's networking and IT news. We cover new offerings from Aruba and Fortinet, financial results from Juniper and Intel, and more. We're sponsored in part by Nokia. You can streamline the provisioning of network services with Connect. This is a microservice in Nokia's fabric services system that integrates your data center fabric with compute platforms, including VMware, OpenStack, and Kubernetes. You can find out more at nokia.ly slash fabric dash services dash system. And listen to the Tech Bytes podcast we recorded with Nokia on the subject, published on July 25th, 2022. And check out the Heavy Strategy podcast with Greg Farrow and Jonah Till Johnson from Nemertes Research. Uh, they go back and forth on topics for the day. Greg, what do you think of the last issue? Uh, well, we've been talking a lot about uh, enterprise architecture lately, um, but the last one we did was on VMware and Broadcom and took a really 25-minute discussion talking over the different points and um, like we say, we're, mostly we're asking questions. We don't necessarily have answers, but we give you some ideas on how to go and search for your own answers because everybody's situation is a little bit different. Of course. And the questions are all the same, but the answers are sometimes different. So everybody uses the same technology. Everybody's got the same problems, but the solutions sometimes vary. And so that's the purpose of that podcast isn't to tell you what to do. You know, this isn't one of those podcasts where you go, and we've got top five tips, you know, like, <laughs> with these three things, you can change your life. None of that. It's more like, this is hard, and, you know, here's some things to think about. So a yeah. practical podcast, I'd like to think. Yeah. Uh, and last but not least, we have a new podcast. It's called Kubernetes Unpacked. It's in the community channel. It's all things Kubernetes for folks who want to get up to speed on this container orchestration platform. Uh, and we do have plans to move this into the main feed at some point, but for now, it's in the community channel. If you're interested in Kubernetes, go check it out. All right, uh, let's start with some FU, some follow-up. Uh, Greg, we, uh, Ethan and I saved this one for you. It came in earlier. It was uh, based mm. on a, an earlier uh, network break we did where we were talking about Cisco. Um, there was some conversation about whether Cisco might be deprecating uh, ACI in favor of Nexus Cloud. Uh, mm. This person heard that episode and reached out to uh, Cisco to get some feedback. And uh, according to Cisco, no, of course, ACI isn't going away. Well, yeah. And my initial reaction was to be a little bit snarky and say, well, what do you expect the product manager to say whose livelihood depends on? <laughs> depends on, on ACI, yes. <laughs> yeah, this year. Um, I think what I was more doing is drawing a longer horizon here. My view is, is that what Cisco's doing in the cloud with Nexus Cloud and the Meraki platform, and we'll talk a little bit about how HP Aruba is showing that there's only one way forward for management and interface platforms and all the others will fade away. And I think Cisco is heading in that direction as well. I would say to you, ACI hasn't been the success that Cisco wanted, that the other tools which are cloud-hosted is the business direction that Cisco wants to go, that uh, the existing Cisco ACI does not do well in the cloud. It's not um, ideally suited to running in the cloud away. It's architected and built is built. You know, it's a product that's what, 10 years old now. It was originally designed over 10 years ago when containers didn't exist. Its architecture has been, you know, batted around from over the time. It's It runs a, a legacy jar of architecture. It has very high intensity. It needs a lot of money spent on service. It's just not where the industry is going to. And I think my point was to say that ACI is probably fading away for two reasons. One is the way it works as an architecture. It's not well suited to the cloud. Um, and the other parts of the business are probably better suited to being, you know, cloud hosted, locally delivered. And also that ACI hasn't been the success that Cisco wanted it to be. Um, it's, you know, the majority of people only use it in network mode. They don't use it in application mode. I think it's something like less than 5% of companies are using it in application mode is my, I don't have a measurement, but that's my instinct. I never hear of anybody except for the one or two standout stories in this space. 
And if you're not using ACI in application mode, it has very little value. You're just using it to configure eVPNs and VLANs and IP routing. There's not a whole lot of value in that product compared to what other tools can do that would be cloud hosted. And that's certainly what we've seen from competitive vendors in, and across our network, we do shows with them, you know, look at network, uh, Nokia with fabric services system, look at Juniper with Appstra, look at um, all the other companies that are doing something in this space and doing cloud hosting, HP, Aruba is in the same area. They're moving all of their stuff into a single cloud route managed. ACI doesn't fit that model. So I think it, it will fade left. There's enough of it out there now for Cisco to hold onto it and not disrupt the Apple cart, but it's not. I don't believe in in the long term that it will be around. All right, that's a good response. Uh, we appreciate follow ups and commentary. Uh, we've got one more. Uh, this is sort of just an observation on our last network break. Ethan and I were talking about the metaverse, uh, whether that mm. would be you know a tool we all use for business or pleasure. Uh, Snow crash without dystopia. This person says we tried that. It was called Second Life. We discovered that moving our lives to Second Life just made Second Life suck as much as our first work lives. So there is a downvote <laughs> for the metaverse. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, my view on the metaverse is that that you know in the same way that uh, phone calls letters were replaced with phone calls were replaced with emails and emails were subsequently replaced by Zoom, you know, and, and those video conferencing apps. And now we have Slack and Zoom, you know, that sort of progress. But what's interesting to note is that we still continue to use email. People still use phone calls. Mm-hmm. And one of the pictures around the metaverse is that it's going to be this all-consuming, nothing else exists. And that is, well, obviously false. Uh, that's just not, it's going to be, so. if if it has a value, and it's not to say that it will have value, I think m- my current instinct is that it's a decade or two away and what that looks like is just too hard to see. And I think uh, Facebook knows that its current business model is failing. It's got the numbers from inside. And so it's doubling down on the idea that there's some sort of, you know, value in virtual reality or augmented reality. Right. But I don't think Facebook is going to be, you know, it, Facebook's not going away, but it's not going to be the dominant company. It's already losing momentum. It's losing subscribers. It's losing relevance. Um, people are much more willing to criticize it. And Zuckerberg doesn't hold the sort of star power that he used to have. Remember how mm-hmm. everybody used to fawn over him like they used to fawn over uh, Elon Musk? Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and when you lose that sort of thing, then your ability to move the market in a particular direction um, stops. And I think, you know, uh, Facebook has spent $4.5 billion on virtual reality so far. And how, how's that going? Do you, does anybody really feel like that's doing something useful? Right. I don't think yeah. so. So um, whatever the metaverse looks like, I think it looks like blockchain, you know, in the sense that there'll be multiple false attempts, multiple failed starts, and 10 to 20 years is the sort of thing that we're looking at. Just remember that email took 20 years to arrive. So why would the metaverse take less? Yeah. Yeah. My very quick comments. I think Facebook wants to drag people kicking and screaming into the metaverse because it's an opportunity for growth for them, which they desperately need because Facebook is kind of topped out in terms of growth. Uh, so they're just trying to squeeze, you know, the same amount of money out of that that mm. old lemon. Um, uh, so they, they, they're trying to, you know, uh, create and then conquer new worlds for them to dominate. I don't think they will be a major player. My own guess is that rather than sort of the all-encompassing, all enveloping metaverse will have more of an augmented reality sort of overlay because hmm. uh, that's a, but you know yeah I, I agree 10 20 years is the, the high timeline we're looking at the horizon I mean Facebook's going to be successful for a while sure I mean I recently very long tail 
yeah, I recently took up a hobby which is dominated by people sort of in the 50, you know, 45, 40 to 60, 40 to 70 year old age bracket. Mm -hmm. And all of the resources for that are all on Facebook. You know, all of the groups, all the chats are on Facebook. (laughs) I'm very sorry to hear that. (laughs) Yes, I know. It it pains me a great deal, I must say. Um, But it's awful. Just appalling. Like the whole experience is so, uh, I want to say sort of like very 20, 2002, 2003 type experience. Mm. And yeah, so I don't, I don't, you know, none of the young, younger generations, none of the new users are using Facebook. And I think Facebook thinks it can be cool by making a market category, but you do, you just start, I just can't stop wondering whether they're forcing it and failing and yeah. how long can they fail for? Mm. Quite a long time. They've got a long. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. They're still, they're still pulling in lots of ad money, even though they're not That's growing. Right, so, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, as always, if you want to issue a comment, a correction, uh, you can go to packetpushers.net slash FU. The FU stands for follow-up, and we always appreciate the feedback. Uh, Let's dive into the news first. Aruba Networks is announcing new AI opt capabilities in its Aruba Central platform. New features include client identity to automatically identify clients as they attach to a network, a firmware recommender that suggests the best firmware to run on an access point. You can now do natural language queries and get responses in Spanish as well as English. And there's a predictive failure analysis for Aruba hardware. This is based on TAC engagement. So for example, if the TAC team's getting repeated calls about the same or similar issues, they can reach out to the data science side of Aruba to investigate and then give customers with similar equipment a heads up on a potential issue. I want to touch on the language thing first, because I think the Spanish and English, like natural language queries in Spanish and English, it's very interesting. In the past, that would have been very difficult because you would have had to match the queries to a set of, you know, templated libraries and create them manually, you know, and then every language you would require an equivalent amount of work. But in Mm -hmm. AI, it really comes out of, you know, compute power training. These words are associated with this activity. And once you've built the model, you can easily or readily, not easily, readily retrain it for use on other languages. So this idea to use Spanish, which Aruba says they have a significant number of customers in Spanish-speaking countries, is sort of a a power, an AI machine learning, deep learning power. Mm -hmm. And I see that as kind of something I hadn't, an angle I hadn't seen before. Yeah, I I would assume they tried to automate this process of incorporating Spanish uh, into the natural language Mm -hmm. query process, incorporating automation as much as possible, of course. Why not? Yeah. But I think it's, I I mean, it's great that people in other countries aren't expected to learn English to be able to work in technology. Of course. In that sense. Oh, especially at an operational level. So, and, and I do see this process of AI ops in networking as the transition from, you know, configuration of networks to operation of networks and how we move from monitoring networks to visibility of networks and how do we handle the increasing complexity. And I've said this before, we have so many more nodes in our network now. We have overlays. We don't just terminate the branch to the data center. We now terminate the branch directly to internet, directly to SaaS, directly to off-premise clouds, you know, whatever it is. And that, you know, diversity and leads to complexity. And Set, you know, it's a truism that too many tools are as bad or as worse um, as few tools. Like, you know, just having a few tools is actually a bad thing because you don't have enough coverage, but too many tools is even worse. Look at security where there's literally hundreds of security tools. It's just too many. Yeah. And increasingly, AI ops is seen as a way out for people shortages. There's not enough people in the infrastructure space to operate these networks. And AI ops is something that, you know, vendors can go to customers and say, look, you don't have to hire people. You can replace it with this. Now that's a long-term, you know, I've argued before that vendors tell, make promises to customers that 
you know, if you just bought our new product, you wouldn't need more headcount. <laughs> Everything would be fine. Everything would be fine. Of course, that's a way to justify taking the money from the headcount and putting it mm-hmm. towards a capital expenditure. But in this case, I think there's actually, you know, it's a reasonable argument to say companies don't want to hire more headcount, partly because they can't find them, partly because uh, IT may or may not be seen as a, a cost center in some organizations and so forth and so on. So having AI ops to help you with the operations is success factor for companies. And so we're seeing vendors jump onto it in the sense that um, Aruba make a big deal in the, you know, because you and I were both on the on the presentation from them. Mm-hmm. And they were talking a lot about how all of this is based on a single data source. So Aruba has built a data lake. They've got all of the AI and the developers sitting on this this combination of tooling. So Aruba ClearPass, which is you know the old ClearPass, is now sitting on this same Aruba central infrastructure. Right. So where before we used to see vendors have this division was making a network monitoring and this division was making a network analytics and this division was making you know something else. This is all done on one central platform, Aruba Central, and. This AI ops stuff is now part of that central. I think that's a, an absolute significant transition in infrastructure software that we're going to see right across the board as time goes by. Yeah, I know, you know there's a lot of skepticism among network engineers, and I think justified about AI and AI ops. So Aruba's taking pains to say, look, our, our data lake, it's got uh, data from 200 million endpoints, 2 million AP switches and SD-WAN devices. They're trying to you know, sort of uh, give a little bit of comfort to folks who may be thinking, yeah, okay, whatever. But if you do have... A data set of that size, you can presumably do interesting things with it. And clearly that's mm. where Aruba's headed. Yeah. And I think interestingly, AI drives automation, automation drives AI because we needed automation first and the use of APIs to configure equipment and, you know, getting people's confidence up about this. But now that we've got automation in place, AI ops, which is doing, you know, this query language. At this stage, most people aren't just letting the AI do its thing. I think it'll be a while before the vendors and customers have reached that level of confidence. Right. But I think it's going to be an acceleration of automation as AI comes in to help simplify it. If it, as long as that works out and all the signs are that that is actually what's working out. Mm. All right, links in the show notes. If you want to find out more, we'll move on. Uh, Fortinet has announced a new service that collects and correlates data from multiple cloud services to help customers manage public cloud risks and vulnerabilities. The service is called Forti CNP. It's available on AWS, Azure, and Google. So features include the ability to ingest alerts from cloud-native workload and network threat detection tools and then correlate and prioritize alerts. It can analyze known vulnerabilities in cloud services. It can help you prioritize risk. It can also scan and monitor the configuration of cloud services to look for things like misconfigurations and then recommend a best practice. It can even scan container registries for vulnerabilities and analyze permission settings to look for risks. So I'm seeing this as kind of like in some ways a seam um, in that it's sort of a big bucket where you can put all of this information and then help you surface mm. up the most important things as opposed to trying to sift through thousands or hundreds of individual alerts and alarms. Yeah, and this is almost directly parallel to 40 Manager and what it already does with its security management platform. Mm-hmm. And so what it feels to me like is they've already got this tool set up there that already does most of this. And up until now, it's been done on the Fortinet hardware products, you know, the, the SD-WAN, the firewalls, the IDSs, and all that type of stuff. And really what they've done now is just make some adaptations to ingest data from the off-premise cloud companies, AWS, Azure, and Google, and they can just feed that in and, and you start to get the same configuration management, you know, security, is it drift, is it configuration drift? There's a series of known configuration mistakes that people commonly make, you know, S3 buckets being classic. Right. Yes. And classic. it can flag them up to you because that's exactly the same as a any any rule in a firewall fundamentally. Right. <laughs> yes. 
So yeah, I agree. It's a bit like a seam in a way, and it correlates all of those alerts. And I'd say this has probably been in the works for a while. Fortinet is, you know, seeing its customers increasingly move into the off-premise cloud. And so it's going where the customers are going, as we said before. Right. And it's integrating with services you might already be using in the cloud, like uh, Amazon Guard Duty, AWS Security Hub, Microsoft Defender. It can ingest v- VPC flow logs. It can scan for malware and S3 buckets, mm. Azure blobs, uh, and uh, GCP cloud storage. So it is essentially... Uh, you know, a single dashboard or overlay for a bunch of cloud services to help you identify yeah. and prioritize risks and then go do something about them. Yeah. The unique thing here, I think, is that you'd be able to do both off-prem and on-prem um, monitoring of your security system and your configurations and your assets. Yep. So if you're, you know, running 40 net in your 40 data center with your 40 WAN, sorry, I'm joking a little bit, everything 40 net's got 40 in front of it. Um, but, you know, if you're into the 40 way of life, you know, 40 lifestyle, um, then this makes sense because then the the public cloud security monitoring or this part of the security monitoring system is just all in the same tool set that you're already using. Or maybe that's enough for you to go and look at and consider that it's whether it fits you. Yeah. Uh, there's more details. We'll have a link to the data sheet uh, in the show notes for this podcast if you want to go check it out. Uh, but we'll move on. Uh, although we're sticking with cloud security, Fortinet and the cloud networking startup Alkira, they're partnering on an integration between Fortinet's firewalls and Alkira's networking service. The partnership lets Fortinet customers spin up FortiGate firewalls in a cloud using Fortinet Manager, and then Alkira handles the networking. Yeah, now this is very useful because uh, we've talked a lot before about how AWS's proprietary networking doesn't work with Google's networking, doesn't work with Azure's networking. And if you want to try and unify the approach to doing connectivity between these clouds, it's extremely difficult. And um, there are tools out there that attempt to map each function from each cloud. But of course, not all clouds implement all things. And what Alkira does is create... Uh, a series of of devices that sit over and then create a standard connectivity model between all of that. And uh, Fortinet has uh, an open, open fabric ecosystem, which is where they publish a series of APIs about how your product can interoper- interoperate with the Fortinet security fabric. We've done shows on the Fortinet security fabric, um, which is the same as what we talked about in the previous episode. So Alkira is announcing that they've partnered to the open fabric ecosystem, and they're now interoperating with the Fortinet 40 manager, security manager, as part of the security fabric. It's only when I went to look at this page that I realized just how many companies are integrated here, Drew. It's it's 100 or more. With Fortinet? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think they do. have a look at their alliance partners, you see this massive list. Yeah, they, they do take pride and I think have made an effort to uh, open up their APIs and their partnerships with third parties because they know that while they have a big security portfolio, they can't do everything. And so it does make sense to be able to interoperate, mm. maybe do some you know API connections with other uh, security products to get whether data or be able to do automations, that kind yeah. of thing. But it's interesting. I like Alkira for that multi-cloud. You know, if you want one way of networking across all of the cl- off-prem clouds, They've got a great solution for that. It's one worth looking into and understanding because it's a different approach to how other people do it. Um, and then having it as part of Fortinet might mean you be able, if your Fortinet is your security fabric, then you can either you can work together to make that happen. You can instantiate Fortinet firewalls instead of the Alkira firewall to meet your your enterprise architecture and so on. Right, a quick break uh, to pause for a message from our sponsor, Nokia, to talk about the microservice in Nokia's Fabric Service System. This feature is called Connect, and it lets Fabric Service System integrate with platforms like VMware, OpenStack, and Kubernetes, so you can streamline the provisioning of network services in top-of-rack switches when new workloads or services are instantiated. 
Connect makes API calls to register compute platforms to essentially plug into Fabric Server as a system. So for instance, Connect can listen to VMware vCenter for port groups and VLANs as they're created, and then configure the matching VLAN and broadcast domain on the top of rack switches in the data center. Connect offers similar capabilities for OpenStack and Kubernetes. So the goal is to enable a NetOps environment so that network teams can slot into compute and application workflows and keep pace with new services coming online. Fabric Service System and Connect also make sure that network engineers don't simply turn over the reins to the dev teams. Network engineers can set up predefined resources and controls so that the appropriate guardrails are in place. If you want to learn more about Connect and Fabric Service System, go to nokia.ly slash fabric services system. And you can also listen to the Tech Bytes podcast we recorded on July 25th, 2022 with the Packet Pushers. And one more time, that's nokia.ly slash fabric services system. We thank Nokia for being a sponsor. Right, back to the news. Uh, apparently, fiber optic cabling isn't immune to supply chain disruptions. There's no shortage of raw glass, but Greg, uh, you found out there are problems with the components that make that glass into cable. Yeah, I've mentioned, was it a few weeks ago, I, I sort of mentioned that fiber optic cabling is in short supply, and some people got back in contact with me and said, thanks for the tip. We went out and checked, and that's correct. <laughs> they sort of went aware of it. Um, I saw a financial research note from Jeffries. Um, they're a financial analyst firm. It's a restricted list. Um, but they were observing that the problems in uh, manufacturing fiber optic isn't the glass in the fiber. It's the supply of resins and plastics for the cable sheaths and the mounting brackets and all that sort of stuff. Um, and that combines with the lead time to bring new manuf manufacturing machines online. And it's also a very labor-intensive process in a time of worker shortage. But they said the supply of resins and plastics is a big one because a lot of those came from, you guessed it, Russia and Ukraine. Uh, <laughs> so uh, okay, right, they're, now they're probably made from petroleum. Yeah. And so when there's a yeah. Yeah, constraint on gas, oil and gas supplies, yeah. That's yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, so what they're saying is at the same time, there's a lot more demand. In particular, we're seeing very large projects like in Britain and in parts of the US, we're seeing fiber to the home. And that consumes, you know, when you're deploying hundreds and hundreds of kilometers of well, thousands of kilometers of fiber optic cable, you're consuming the output of entire factories. Mm -hmm. um, so um, two things here is that, yes, there is a problem with fiber optic. If you're doing a lot of it, you might want to think about ordering early or taking that into account in your project plans. Um, it's expect price increases beyond inflation because in a shortage, people will pay more and people can charge more and take greater profits. Um, but don't order too much. The general consensus is that at some point in the future, if manufacturing will catch up and or demand will fall uh, in the near future. We'll talk more about that when we talk about silicon, but in the general economic landscape appears to be while we're having an inflationary cycle this year, it's expected to drop next year. So maybe, you know, wait for next year. All right. Uh, we got some financial results. We'll start with Juniper Networks. They reported financial results for the second quarter of 2022. The company had net revenues of $1.27 billion, which was up 8% year over year, and net income of $113 million, down 3% year over year. I think the weird part here, Drew, is that <laughs> even though they delivered on everything that they said they were going to deliver, they just sort of hedged their bets on Q3 guidance on the next quarter mm. and sort of said, we're not too sure where it's going. Supply chain <laughs> seems to have fixed itself and could be good, could be bad, which is Probably too honest for Wall Street because the share price fell down five to ten percent um, because they said it might be slower. Uh, the CFO said um, it expects some pressure to profit and margins over the next several quarters, and that extended lead times and elevated costs will likely persist for the at least the remainder of the year. That's not what no one else is saying. Anyway, uh, what we're seeing in, on Wall Street particularly is that people are very nervous about tech stocks 
and any bad news they instantly sell off. I suspect Juniper's been a little <laughs> oversold here because of the, you know, we've seen the massive falls of some high-flying tech stocks, you know, losing 60 to 80%. Sure. Whereas there's really, it doesn't, to me, Juniper's just delivering on its numbers and saying we're not too sure where it's going because of supply chain and then people start running for the hills perhaps in a bit of a panic. But So, so maybe Juniper's trying to build in a hit now to the stock price as opposed to promising something and then not delivering next quarter and then having Wall Street be like, you failed to meet your targets, rah, punish I think them. they're more doing the Cisco thing where they under-report and then over and then come in easily. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Cisco always Cisco comes in over the market. Time, so, yeah. <laughs> Cisco always comes in the market just over what the analysts said they would, you know, like one cent above earnings per share or <laughs> just $100 million over the number that they, you know, Always, 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 always. So, yeah. That's a good trick. Uh, moving on, uh, Intel, they reported their Q2 2022 results. They aren't great. The company had re uh, revenues of $15.3 which was down 22% versus last year, and they posted a net income loss of $500 million for the quarter. Yeah, lots going on here. Intel uh, has really been punished. The shares are down 15% or more. The general um, feedback on the financial sites is that Intel's in deep trouble, more or less. Um, I wouldn't go that far, but certainly Intel has not delivered on its promise. Like when Gelsinger walked in the door, was it a year ago now? Yeah, he, maybe. Yeah, yeah. he sort of intimated that he was going to be able to turn it around. Here I, I want to think that Gelsinger is getting as much bad news out in the open as possible and sinking it all into a quarter. Mm. So it's a big lump here. They're down $454 million on um, – the total revenue they were predicted, a lot of that is due to the fact that the Optane memory business unit is dead. So they're taking a $559 million write down on that. Um, the long-term outlook for Intel is very poor. Uh, they're talking about laptops and desktop sales dropping 20 to 30% in the next six months. Mm. And the general sense is that there was a massive spike two years ago as we went into COVID and everybody moved home and there was yep. a lot of ordering of equipment. Yep. And- now everybody's got equipment and the sales are rapidly falling away. That refresh cycle hasn't come through yet. Um, I saw another article somewhere which sort of suggested that high-end laptops and high-end desktops remains buoyant. That is, you know, still selling at about the same volume as they were last year, but the low end is absolutely just dropping away as the market changes. Um, so you're probably looking for HP, not HPE, HP desktops and Dell to sort of have some problems here as the sales of laptops and desktops fades away. Um, as there is some return to work or um, there is people, you know, not buying. They don't need so much because they've just bought new ones over the last two years. Right. Uh, for mm. this quarter, the PC business unit did see revenues drop 25% in just that one quarter. So that is, mm. yeah, <laughs> clearly. Probably problem. the data center business unit being down 16% was the biggest one um, mm -hmm. because that has been Intel shining light for a very long period of time. And it would suggest that AMD and ARM might be really getting into um Intel's customers and breaking the stranglehold that they've typically had in the data center market. Now, keep in mind, the biggest buyers of Intel's products are the cloud companies now, not the enterprise. Right. So not Dell and HPE for their data center products, as was once the case. It's now very much the case that just a handful of data center buyers are the key buyers for Intel. And if they're not producing the right products or viable alternatives exist, Intel will certainly struggle. Um I did notice that Intel's mobile eye business unit, which is a vision unit, it's also partly associated with vehicles um, stuff, 
that Intel was planning to list Mobileye floated on the stock market and take the dividends. I think they're hoping for about a $5 billion dividend from that by listing it on the stock market. Uh, but that stopped when the share prices fell. We had the tech collapse earlier this year. But uh, that business now has 41% growth. So there's a highlight. <laughs> that was 41% growth for the quarter is pretty yeah. fantastic. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And of course, Intel is expected to be a big winner. The US government this week announced the CHPS package. That is uh, $54 billion allocated to directly subsidize manufacturing of silicon chips in the US. And it's supplemented with an $84 billion allocation to research and education. Now, uh, the research and education is very important and don't don't miss why. There has to be universities churning out graduates in this field mm -hmm. to be able to run the factories that you need to build. And that needs to be larger than the factories because if you don't have the workforce, you can't build it. One of the reasons that TSMC is so successful is they actually have all of their fabs are built in a particular location and there are universities all around Taiwan, which is a reasonably small place. It's an island. And there's sufficient graduates to staff those factories. And they need to be very skilled in very niche businesses to make that work. So it looks like the, the US government might have this policy right. It's not just a case of giving companies money to build factories. But what I also noted was that Intel actually pulled $4 billion from its capital investments to pay its shareholders a dividend. Now, <laughs> you've got factories being built in Ohio and Arizona. Oh, that sticks and, in my craw. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, right. So... You do want to feel like you know, um, you know that 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 there's nothing like a tech company likes than free taxpayer money. Like better, they just love it. They and they'll be the first people to put their hand out for it. Uh, yep. You know, and fight to be in the queue. But I think in this case, there is certainly a strategic thing going on here. We certainly need the Western world generally. You know, needs to have a silicon manufacturing outside of Taiwan to some extent. Um, with China making aggressive noises and and you know. Uh, saying that Taiwan remains a Chinese state, which it's not. It never has been and it never was, depending on how you view the history of that location. But they're saying that Taiwan belongs to China. Well, then that could be a serious risk to the Western world where the majority of our chips come from just the factories in that one place. So I think you'll see much more of this. Uh, Europe will do the same thing and so forth. I will say it doesn't help Intel's case when it says we need government partnership, meaning give us government taxpayer money to help build these foundries and invest mm -hmm. in this uh, infrastructure at home, and then to take your capital investment money and pay it back to shareholders. That feels like, uh, I'm, yeah. I'm poor, I need help. And also there's, there's <laughs> $4 billion that, uh, yeah, thanks. thanks. It does feel a bit, uh, it does feel a bit creepy, I must say. Yeah. Um, and that's why I highlighted it because it's not, it doesn't feel right. <laughs> it's not right, you, frankly. And I mean, $54 right. billion yes. dollars is an awful lot of money. Yeah, you know that's and that that's that's our money here in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So you know that's the total revenue of Cisco for a year, right? Um, so that's a fair bit of money. What I also note is that Gelsinger has um had a has his pay package approved at one hundred and eighty million dollars a year. <laughs> it was a rejected by shareholders, but the board went ahead and awarded it to him anyway. Mm. So I wonder. I don't think Gelsinger is going to get a long runway here. You know, the shareholder said, we don't think he's worth $180 million because he's not delivering. And then the board said, no, he definitely is, and then awarded it to him. <laughs> uh, uh, corporate boards also really frustrate me uh, yes. because they tend to be friends of each other. And so, of course, they're all going to approve each other's pay packages. That's very... Yeah, it's a tough one. I just I just don't believe anybody's worth $180 million a year. God, no. Uh, yeah. yeah. $10 million? Yeah. Especially you with know. a quarter like that. Yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, that's right. So, yeah. Well, anyway... 
Anyway. It seems a bit frustrating <laughs> to see, you know, certainly you want to motivate them to work hard, but most of the people that are working hard is the people around him, not else. It's not all one person, right? Network break is getting increasingly pitchforky here. Yeah, sorry. Uh, no, no, I think. <laughs> I, you know, sometimes, sometimes the pitchforks need to come out. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of everybody getting paid well, not one person. Um, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> exactly. The people at the top there. don't work much harder than just about everybody else, and they're not taking bigger <laughs> risks than anybody else. So Yes, yes, yes. Uh, all right. Well, another note on supply chain. We talked a little bit about uh, fiber optic earlier, but Greg, you've got some other observations about supply chain issues in general. Yeah. So my previous content comments about the supply chain were in the context of, say, Juniper and Intel and that sort of stuff. And obviously the, sh the shortages in the fiber optic cabling was one thing. But what we're also seeing is that the chip makers or the silicon makers across the board, that's from the fabs, from the from the the packaging companies, the whole bit, are reporting falling demand in 2023, 2024 in their financial results. Now, the reports are a little bit inconsistent because some of people are saying rising prices are saying they're slowing demand. As we talked about, people are buying less laptops and desktops. Mm -hmm. Others are saying that customers have bought enough advanced stock to get them through the next two years. And so once that stock sits in the customer warehouses, they won't need to be manufacturing it. So they're going to, you know, there's been a forward sale sort of thing. Yeah, and we talked a bit about the U.S. government approving quite a significant amount of money in grants and subsidies for uh, factory buildouts as well as research grants to to populate the the market with with workers. Um, and then there's also some reports that freight costs are starting to uh, mitigate. So this year, freight costs will remain high and inflated, but the predictability of the freight market in terms of ships crossing the ocean and so forth is actually now becoming more stable. The general sense is that freight costs have peaked. Um, and if you put all those things together, you know, container shipping costs are higher, but not increasing. And um, what we talk about, if you read the financial results for a lot of these companies, they talk about expedited freight. In the world of freight, expedited freight is, oh my gosh, I've had to make an emergency order. I have to contact a freight broker and get priority delivery. So instead mm -hmm. of paying a bulk rate, I have to pay 10 times, 20 times, 50 times more to put it on a plane instead of a container and for it to arrive in good time. Right. And then you have to pay expedite fees. So the freight handler then starts to allocate full-time headcount to track it through the freight system. And it's phenomenally expensive. If you've never done it, you've probably, I had the misfortune of living through this in a previous era. And I mean, you, you've- You've probably done it uh, just through personal ordering when you realize, oh, wait, there's a birthday coming up, and instead of having it ship ground, I have to have it ship air, and I'm paying three times for that. Yeah, that's you know, right. You order and the same online, yeah. sort of thing happens. Yeah. And so we've seen companies like Arista say, you know, our costs are much higher because we're actually having to expedite deliveries from alternate suppliers. So they pay higher for an alternate supplier to cover a gap in their supply chain because they've had decommits late in the, in the product cycle, and then they have to pay expedited freight fees, which adds up to a lot. Um, in a big company. So if the supply chain smooths out with, you know, demand is generally dropping as inflation takes hold, um, people are slowing down their spending, oil prices are high, um, mean that customers are slowing down their spending, energy costs across the board, we got the war. So we're looking at probably supply chain starting to stabilize in mid-2023 at this stage, which is along the lines of what I said uh, when it started 18 months ago. I really felt that this was never going to be a short-term thing but that doesn't mean that something couldn't happen between now and then to disrupt it. So, you know, <laughs> the world is that's where it is today. Yes. That's where it is today. Tune in next week for an update. 
<laughs> That's right. It's always changing. Yeah. All right. Uh, we're going to wrap up on a, a, our surfing dog story uh, about a connected scarf. And Greg, it also involves sports ball. So I'm sure you're thrilled about this. Uh, the Premier League oh, yeah. football club, Manchester City, is touting a new connected scarf. It uses an IoT sensor that uh, when you wrap it around your neck, it can measure heart rate, body temperature, and emotional arousal. The goal of the scarf is to capture, quote, the body's bio signals throughout the match to allow us to shape a more curated, customized experience in the future. Uh, I don't really know how you customize and curate an experience uh, at a soccer match, but uh, you might be interested in what the scarf is, quote, powered by Cisco as well. So it's it's all ah, coming together. There's the network angle, right? There's so. the network angle. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know what to make of this. Like, uh, I I don't understand people who go to a sports ball uh, in fancy dress um, and watch people dancing around a paddock. It's It's a mystery to me to some extent. Um, but quite why you would want to track the audience and their emotional response. Do people not understand what this means? Like the amount of data that's being collected here is like, it's very you know, creepy. if you're complaining about what Facebook or Twitter sees about <laughs> you, this is like going up another level. So it's, it's deeply personal because it's actually touching your neck and measuring and then reporting this to somebody who's going to do something yeah. with it. I, I assume it's probably going to be, you know, things like, I've noticed your body temperature has gone up 0.75 a degree. Perhaps a refreshing lager would go down well. Better work to our concession stand and get 10% off. I just think this is like, this feels like a gimmick. Um, yeah. A, but it's a also deeply, a scary a demonstration gimmick. of how far we've come. Yep. Mm. Yep, mm. it is. Yeah. So it's I do remember we gimmick. were buying, uh, five, six years ago, we were getting earbuds that could monitor your heart rate and mm -hmm. your body temperature. Do you remember those? Mm -hmm. yep. they, they didn't last very long. This does feel like that. I am not at all sure why I want a scarf. The thing that maybe I can see is um, they could do like a cryptocurrency type thing where your scarf actually comes with a, a wallet <laughs> built in and you could go down and buy food <laughs> with pretend like, you know, they've got some sort right. of anti-cash type thing going on. So, I could see that, yes. Yeah. And you get a discount, yes, at home games or something. I don't know. Yeah, or a, or a bulk discount or, you know, loyalty to the club. That'd right. be the club that has no loyalty to you, but okay, sure. That's right. Yes, they, Manchester City wants your heart and now your data, your biological data. Yeah, that's right. All right. So medical right. medical programs coming up next week. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> Targeting a, <laughs> lawyers and lawyers and doctors lining up to. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, that wraps up the news portion. If you want more news and commentary, check out the Human Ethics Structure newsletter. It gathers up tech blogs from around the web, plus essays, links to blogs and podcasts from the tech community and more. It's free to sign up at packetpushers.net slash newsletter. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.